the Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Celia Menchel, chair of the club's member-led Middle East Forum. The Commonwealth Club is one of the nation's oldest and largest political affairs forum. The Middle East Forum is one of many member-led forums that do a variety of programming at the club. I'd like to give a special welcome to new members and to students, and to mention that the next Middle East Forum event will be in person, live, on July 22nd. Today we're virtual. The name of the program is Prison Truth, the San Quentin News Story. You can find out more about these and other upcoming events and about member-led forums at commonwealthclub.org. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished moderator for today, Dr. Banafshi Kanush, the Vice Chair of the Member-Led Middle East Forum. Thank you. Thank you and good afternoon and welcome to today's virtual meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. Today's program is part of the club's Good Literature series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. I'm Dr. Banafshi Kanush, Vice Chair of the club's member-led Middle East Forum. I'll be your moderator for today's program called The Hidden Palace, A Tale of the Golem and the Ginny, which will be available on YouTube and at www.commonwealthclub.org. The Hidden Palace, A Tale of the Golem and the Ginny was published in 2021 by Harper Collins. It is the long-awaited sequel to Helene Wecker's fascinating novel, The Golem and the Ginny, that was also published by HarperCollins in 2013. It was a New York Times bestseller and received numerous awards. I have had the honor to receive both books and to read them, and I have to say that I was um, taken by both very deeply because they meld the Judaic and Middle Eastern cultures together. And it tells me a lot about the author and her journeys through her own experiences in life that I'm sure are partly reflected in these fascinating novels. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Helene Wecker. Helene Wecker is a Midwest native. She holds a BA in English from Carleton College and an MFA in fiction writing from Columbia University. Her work has appeared in literary journals such as Joyland and Catamaran, as well as the fantasy anthology, The Gin Falls in Love with Other Stories. She currently lives in Pleasanton with her husband and her children. Would you please welcome Helene Wecker? Well, thank you very, very much, uh, Banafshe. Um, it is an honor to be 
Zooming with you and 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 uh, with everyone uh, today, I'm very very grateful that the Commonwealth Club uh, has uh, extended, you know, th- this uh, made this possible. Um, the the club has been such a supporter of my books, uh, both the Golem and the Genie when it first came out, um, and now the Hidden Palace too. All these years later. Um, so I thought I would start at the beginning. Um, for those of you who may not be familiar with my work or for whom it's uh, been a while since you read it. Um, so imagine it's the turn of the 20th century and two supernatural creatures, a female golem and a male genie, suddenly find themselves in Manhattan. The golem, whose name is Chava, is newly born and without a master. The genie, who's called Ahmad, has just been released from the flask that he was trapped in for a thousand years. And now these two must learn how to fit in with the human world around them. Would they be able to pass as just a couple of ordinary immigrants? And what would they learn about humanity in the process? These were the questions that were at the heart of my first book, The Golem and the Genie. Um, I was prompted to write it by my own family history um, as a Jewish American woman married to an Arab American man. Um, We both come from immigrant families, and we've both experienced the subtle and often not so subtle othering that comes with being the children of immigrants. And, you know, that feeling of being different, weird, slightly off. Um, And since I am a nerd at heart, I eventually decided uh, to examine that dynamic through two much more literal others, um, two impossible creatures who are just trying to do their best in this strange new human land. Um, so that was The Golem and the Genie, and that took me about seven years to write. Uh, it came out in 2013. It was a decent success, um, thanks to a good deal of luck and a lot of support from booksellers, book groups, librarians. Um, and uh, I, I was lucky in that It wasn't uh, too long before I could start thinking about writing the next book. Um, And at that point, my life looked a lot different than it had back when I'd first started writing. Um, At that point, I had a three-year-old as well as a new baby. Um, I had an actual life. I couldn't just hide in the house and write all day. Um, And my readers were starting to ask, so what are you going to do next? Is it a sequel? Please tell us there's going to be a sequel. And I thought, sure, why not? Um, It's got to be easier than starting something new from scratch. So I wrote an outline and a few test chapters, and uh, my publisher gave me a contract, and we were off. Um, And by now, I'd heard any number of writers say that it never gets easier to write, um, that every book is just as difficult as the first book. Um, but there are like the truths that you have to learn in your bones before you can really believe them. And for me, this was one of those truths because I hadn't realized that already having the characters and the setting and the rules that they live by doesn't necessarily make it easier to write the book. In fact, it can make it harder. Um, because when I'd first created Chav and Ahmad, um, I'd been completely free to mold them to the particular story that I wanted to tell. Um, So, for instance, Chava is, by nature, a very shy and cautious person. Um, Ahmad is very mercurial and free-spirited. And I designed them deliberately to be these polar opposites who connect with each other over their common experiences, despite those differences. 
But now I was writing a new book with these two characters who are already set in their ways and they each had their own histories and baggage. And I had to honor that. Um, I had to stay true to who they were, but at the same time, find ways for them to change because to me, a story isn't worth telling unless a character has changed somehow by the end of it. And I didn't know if they could change. And that seemed like a pretty big problem. Um, but what happened was, and this is something that's happened to me numerous times in my writing process, the problem itself became the solution to the problem because pretty sure the entire book came, became about this question of change and how much change is possible. Um, so for instance, I'd ended the golem and the genie with the suggestion that Hava and Ahmad were about to take the next step in their relationship and possibly even turn it into a romance. So at least part of this new book had to be about that evolution and how it would play out against the larger struggle of their lives. And that in itself was just going to be a pretty big challenge because they are opposites by nature. Um, Hava can hear the desires and fears of others, and she's in essence programmed to want to help them. Um, and it gives her a much more of an incentive to fit in and pass as human. But that empathic power she has doesn't work with Ahmad. She can't read him which means that at a certain level, she can't understand him. She can't understand what he's thinking, what he's feeling. And she can't help wishing that he was different than he is. But Ahmad, on the other hand, has very little interest in fitting in. He was stolen away from his life in the desert. And he has a people and a culture and a language that he has no access to anymore. Um, and I'm going to demonstrate this just with a reading from the book, uh, a few paragraphs. Uh, this is from early uh, in the book, so hopefully not giving away too many spoilers. Um, the setting is they, the two of them are, um, oh, I guess you don't really need the setting for this. So it's just, it's mentioning something that had happened earlier that day. Let's see. He'd been at his workbench, this is Ahmad, he'd been at his workbench examining one of the newly arrived bars of wrought iron. He had lines for an idea of decorative goods in wrought iron and andirons and fireplace screens and the like. When Arbili, perusing a, character, a, a catalog at his desk, had said, any idea how much solder we have left in the back? Not off the top of my head, the genie had replied, and then had stood there in shock, utterly aghast at himself. Don't bite my head off. She's coming unhinged, a fine cuddle of fish. Oh, go threaten the geese. To trade these phrases with the golem was one thing. It was knowing and deliberate, a shared amusement. But his re reply to Arbili had been so absent-minded, so natural-sounding, that one might have thought he'd spent his entire life talking about the tops of heads. And in that moment it had struck him, for what felt absurdly, like the very first time, that he'd never speak his own language again. The sense of monstrous loss confused him. After all, he rarely even thought in his own language anymore. He'd resolved to do so for the rest of the day, to reassure himself that he could still fill his mind with words that mimicked wind and fire, the sounds of the natural world. And only then had he realized how much of his life refused to be translated. Newspaper, ledger book, automobile, money, cigarette, customer, bank, catalog. In vain he'd hunted for equivalents, metaphors, but they were all wrong, either too vague or too poetic. Even worse, every phrase that had to do with iron was pejorative. His chosen profession turned to an endless stream of obscenity. And as he'd examined his unspoken language, forgotten sayings had begun to surface, the proverbs of elders, childhood taunts, 
angrier than a ghoul's mother. Stop stealing my whirlwind. Give them a storm cloud's welcome. With each one came the thought, I must tell this one to Hava. But translation was no simple matter. The words themselves were many-layered, contingent on the season, on the time of day, on any of a host of circumstances. He imagined stumbling over the explanations, going back to add some crucial detail he'd forgotten, as he tried to show her how each phrase was a small tale in itself. He would never succeed to his satisfaction. He would only sadden and frustrate them both. And even if he could find the words, then what would be laid before her? A dictionary of lusts and caprices, avarice and recklessness, a vocabulary made for wandering where one pleased and taking one, what one wanted, a language suited to the ways of the jinn, which were everything that she abhorred. So as you can see, he's got a few issues that he has to deal with, especially um, involving language in the sense that he has lost something huge. Um, so, and, and he feels uh, pretty jealous of Hava's relative ease at blending in and her desire, the, even just the desire to blend in. And this makes him or her feel totally alien to him. So what does happen when these two try to be more than just friends? If you've been in a meaningful relationship with anyone ever, you know that part of that is about change and compromise. So clearly this isn't going to be an easy romance between the two of them. But what exactly would that look like on the page? How will their arguments change now that they really have the power to wound each other? So that was the first element of change that I had to address. Um, the next regarded the amount of time that the book would cover. The first book takes place over roughly a single year from 1899 to 1900. And I decided that this new book was going to cover a much larger amount of time because I wanted Chava and Ahmad to watch the world change around them. I wanted to see those changes through their eyes because these are supernatural creatures. And I established in the first book that Jin have a lifespan of roughly 800 years and Ahmad's lived only about 200 of those so far. And Hava is basically ageless and immortal. She will always be exactly as she was built. But the city is changing around them constantly. And the people around them are getting older and the children are growing up. And sometimes someone gets sick or injured and sometimes they recover, sometimes they don't. And no matter how good you are at pretending to be human, if you work at a bakery for years on end without aging a single day, eventually someone's gonna notice. And then what happens? So I decided that this book was going to take us from 1900 to 1915, which were some pretty momentous years in American life. Uh, the women's suffrage movement was starting to gain traction. Industrialization and mass production were changing how people lived and worked and how the cities themselves were being built. Uh, for the Jews of the Lower East Side, there was a certain amount of upward mobility happening, uh, but incidents like the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire made it clear that people in power still considered immigrant lives to be cheap and disposable. And there was always the specter of the pogroms happening in the Russian Empire and threatening family elsewhere. As for the community of Little Syria, the beginning of World War I led to new fears for their own families in Lebanon, who were being gradually starved by the Ottoman Empire so that they could send the food to their troops instead. So how might all of this affect Chava and Ahmad? How might uh, Chava decide to change with the times? And would Ahmad manage to keep all this human upheaval from affecting him? What might he lose in the process if he did? And while I was at it, I decided to throw a few new characters into the mix. Um, as part of my research, I'd read about uh, the Odessa pogrom of 1905 and the protest parade that was held in New York City as a response. 
And I decided that for one Lower East Side rabbi, his own response might be to build his own golem, a huge hulking creature that he names Yasala, and that through a twist of fate, Yasala is bound to the rabbi's young daughter instead of himself. And the daughter, whose name is Crindle, ends up at a Jewish orphanage up in Hamilton Heights, where she has to hide Yasala from the rest of the residents. Um, incidentally, that orphanage is based on the real-life Hebrew orphan asylum, which existed there at the time and was an absolutely fascinating place. I could talk about it forever. Um, also, in the first book, we meet Sophia Winston, who is the daughter of one of the richest families in New York. And she and Ahmad have a brief romantic fling, but something goes wrong. And Sophia ends up with a mysterious illness that makes her constantly shake with cold. Um, so I decided to bring Sophia back for the Hidden Palace and give her a larger role. So at the start of the book, she journeys to the Middle East to search for a cure for her condition. And then one day, in the middle of the Syrian desert, she meets a genia, which is a female genie who calls herself Dima. And Dima has been exiled from her own tribe for her own secret condition. So now what will happen when Chava and Ahmad encounter these two? What sort of temptations and uncomfortable truths will come up to the surface? And more to the point, might Chava and Ahmad discover that after so long around humans, they've become strangers to their own kind? So it took me a long time to answer all of these questions to my own satisfaction and to fashion a compelling narrative around them. And in the end, the second book took just as long to write as the first one did. Um, someone pointed out recently to me that I've been living with these characters for going on 15 years, um, which seems impossible, but is true. Um, at this point, they feel like family in the way that you can know a loved one inside out, and yet they still have the power to absolutely baffle you. Um, but getting to write their stories has been one of the greatest gifts and privileges of my life. And uh, even though Chava and Ahmad may be impossible creatures who never existed, I still hope that when you read their stories, they will feel real and familiar to you as well. That is absolutely beautiful. And I think that the best books are those which allow the author to really identify with the subject matter, in your case, with these rich characters and, and let them become a member of your family. Um, and, and you see that throughout your work. So thanks to Helene Wickard, the author of The Hidden Palace, A Tale of the Golem and the Ginny, for her uh, brief comments about her two wonderful books. And now it's time for the question and answer period. I'm Banafsha Kainush, and we have a large number of questions. So let's begin. But before we do, first, I'd like to remind our audiences that this is a virtual Commonwealth Club program called The Hidden Palace, The Tale of the Golem and the Ginny. Today's program is part of the club's Good Literature series underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. And I also want to remind our audiences to please submit your questions via the chat. Um, if you allow me, I'd like to take advantage of my position as moderator and ask the first question. Both of your books are rich in context, historic context, locations. Um, you told me yourself uh, you did quite a lot of research about these locations. It also includes a number of real historical events. You touched on a few of them during your presentation today, such as the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, the sinking of the Titanic, and the beginning of World War I. And that in and by itself is so fascinating because 
very few people are willing to touch the subject of World War One to begin with. Um, what were some of the challenges involved in depicting true events and then tying them into a work of fiction? It was, it could be really challenging at times um, because for one thing, it's very hard to talk about these events that has such huge scope without them taking over the book. Um, interestingly, the one that was the hardest to write around was the Titanic sinking um, because there is such a myth and story and, you know, just sort of overwhelming cultural attachment to the Titanic that I found that when I started writing about it, it was like, I, I, I was going to write it a scene set like on the ship as it's going down. And I was like, you could hear Celine Dion in the background singing. It was, it just became overwhelming. And so I ended up having to write about it in flashback afterwards from the point of view of the character who was there on, on the ship. Um, the same had to sort of sort of the same thing with uh, the Triangle Shirtwaist fire, where, again, I'd written a scene um, where one of the characters is watching the fire happen. And it was just too much. It was just you're, you're especially with that, where it's like you're you're these women are jumping from the windows of, of this building um, to keep from dying in the fire. And instead, they're dying on the sidewalk in front of onlookers. And it's like, how do you write that? How do you write that and do justice to it while also carrying forward the story. It's like at that, you know, when that is happening, the characters that I am writing about become completely insignificant. You know, it's like, why am I even writing about them when this horrible thing is happening? So again, I had to sort of write around it. I had to uh, write about it uh, sort of through a, a parallel story of something else that's going on that day to someone else who is working nearby. Um, and who is having her own sort of brush with death as, as this giant tragedy is happening elsewhere. Um, and that I, I got pretty good at writing around things instead of like writing directly into them, because that really did let me keep the focus on the characters and keep the events sort of in the background. Um, the World War One, funny enough, was actually the easiest of those to write because from the American perspective, it was sort of in the background at this time. It was, you know, going up to 1915, the U.S. wasn't even in the war yet. It was just this horrible thing happening in Europe that you would hear, you know, newspaper headlines about. And except unless you are someone immigrant with, you know, family back home that is being directly affected by it. Um, but even that, I was able to tell the story through their eyes and they're just sort of getting these newspaper headlines or censored reports or, you know, letters from home or no letters from home, which is worse. And so that sense of there is something horrible happening somewhere else that is affecting me, but I don't know exactly what's going on. So it, it, it built up a sense of dread more than more than anything else. I can I can imagine that. Tell me, did the research process uh, differ between um, the events that you covered 
or just generally between the first and the second books that you wrote? The research became a lot more targeted for the second book. For the first book, I had to um, build up a base of knowledge because I went into it knowing nothing. I went into it knowing just about nothing about turn of the century New York or how people lived or any of that. Um, so the first like year of research was just forming a, you know, a, a platform to work with. And then from there I could go and, and do, um, more, you know, specific research. Um, the other thing, and, and for the second book, it was from the beginning, it was like researching particular subjects because the world hadn't changed so much between 1900 and, and, you know, as I went on, I, I like sort of picked up as I went, when the changes like in technology were happening, when the changes in New York were happening, um, but it did become uh, more targeted, like to the Middle East, uh, because of Sophia's travels, um, and a lot of metallurgy. Funnily and funny enough, um, I had to do a lot of research on metalwork, uh, which <laughs> was fun. But I was terrified that I was going to get it all wrong. Um, but also, there's just so much on the internet now. It, you know, with the first book, the, uh, some of the problem was, can I find, you know, can I find enough stuff to, to help? With the second book, it was help, I'm drowning. Like there is just so much out on the internet now. So many things have been digitized. So many archives are online that I could spend years just doing the research. And I had to, at some point for each of these things, just draw a line in the sand and say, okay, I don't need to know everything. I'm not getting a master's degree. I am writing a book of fiction. And so, you know, I... I can take what I have and use it. And so, yeah, it was about like, it was about just not getting lost in, in the internet, basically. Well, I have to say reading both your books, they do feel like PhD dissertations <laughs> in terms of the depth of the event packed uh, descriptions that go into it, as well as character development. And our audiences are naturally interested in, in character development. First of all, your book reads a little bit like a marriage story between mm. Paul and Amanda Jenny. How did that come to you? Or was it the events that came to you first? Or was it the characters that came? Or was it all a mix? And how did you, I mean, I know you worked several years to pull this off, mm -hmm. but what emboldened you to even start that journey? Do you mean in the first book for the in, first? In both of them. I mean, for both of especially them. the second one seems like more of a, you know, evolution of growth in a marriage story, right? Yeah. And, you know, I'd sort of set that up. So I'd set that up for myself in, in the end of the first book um, that there, there's there's a line where it is hinted that that they are going to start something. And there's a line where the golem is, is thinking to herself about this. And, and she says, um, uh, there was no model for this. They would uh, in all likelihood, they'd have to carve it out of thin air. And so that was like, okay, well, there's the challenge. Like, what does that look like when the rubber hits the road? How would this work between them? You know, it ends on a note of hope, but anyone who's been in a relationship for long enough, you know, you know how easy it becomes to hurt the person that you love, especially when you are coming at a problem or a situation from fundamentally different points of view. And I think what gave me the courage to do it was <laughs> feeling like I knew the characters well enough at this point. Um, but also having watched myself, my husband, my friends, my family, everyone, just how like relationship dynamics 
and psychology and then like translating it to these two and wanting to do justice to how real people argue and how real people who love each other can completely misunderstand each other. Um, so honestly, I think a lot of it was just life experience. A lot of it also is, is just backing into a problem without realizing what I'm, you know, I'm really good at biting off more than I can chew and then trying to figure out how to chew it. Like I learn as I go and it does, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. You do that for five years and then eventually it's good enough. And so I, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, you know, some brilliant student of human psychology who knows how to translate that into fiction. It took a lot of blood, sweat and tears to make it look real on the page and to give it the progression of, you know, from honeymoon phase to, you know, major relationship disaster and then, you know, go on from there. Um, so, yeah, it just it was just a lot of a lot of elbow grease. <laughs> Uh, it does. And you picked a golem known for servitude and then the idea of a jinn, which at least um, you know, parts of the Middle East is, is considered this rotating kind of spirit, which you also mm-hmm. really describe in your book. And you couldn't have picked, you know, two wilder characters for, for, the, for the theme of these books. But then you weave it into Judaic stories. You're very mm-hmm. well versed and clearly in, in about Judaism and some aspects of it. And this this brings us to one of the questions is, how rooted is this book in your own experiences of the Middle East? Um, because it seems very rooted in that part of the world, while a lot happens in New York, you know, and on the East Coast. Um, I honestly, okay, so like my Middle East experience. I've been I've been to the Middle East once, uh, and that was to Syria in 2007. So a couple of years before Syria descended into civil war, um, and but I'd been hearing stories of my husband's family, you know, for years. Um, I met him when I was 18, and so you know we had a long time to you know get to know each other but also for me to hear all the stories of his family to meet his family whoever you know whenever they came to the US he also has a decent amount of family in the US already um and I've been to weddings and I've been to uh um you know get togethers and um you know just sort of nodded and smiled when everyone was talking in Arabic because I know no Arabic and 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 neither does he which helps because then we're both sitting there nodding and smiling together um but uh, so a lot of it came from that experience as well as the research um, for the the Jewish side of it. I got, you know, it's funny. I, I think people assume that like I learned the golem tales like from my family growing up. I never got any of that stuff from my uh, my grandparents. My grandparents were all Holocaust survivors. And they never talked about the old country. They never talked about, um, uh, you know, stories of, of, you know, like the Jewish folk tales or anything like that. That was like, they were like this to that. They were like, that's behind us where we've put that away. Um, and I don't think my dad got any stories either. So it was more just being like the sci-fi and fantasy geek that I am. Um, and then 
getting, I don't even know when the first Golem story that I heard was. Um, I must have gotten it in some like compendium of world folk tales or something like that. Um, and because I was really big into those uh, when I was little. Um, and then I just all sort of carried that with me as like, and here's the Jewish one. Um, and so when I, you know, I, I felt a little, um, uh, a bit of ownership and, you know, a little bit of pride about that. Um, you know, when I would hear the, the golem tales of, of, uh, of Prague, um, and, you know, people would reference them and, and I'd be like, oh, I know that one cause I'm Jewish. And, you know, so it, it's, uh, and then going from there, it really was just getting the, getting the education as I needed it and building on top of that, um, as I was writing the books. This brings us to another question asked by one of uh, our members, which is to what extent do you consider yourself a fantasy writer? Um, there are elements of fantastical, you know, um, observations in your writing, or do you consider yourself more of a writer of historical fiction? That's a tough one. I consider myself very much a fantasy writer. Um, oh. And I love that my books sort of defy genre in that way, in that I don't, I walk into any bookstore and I don't know where it's going to be shelved. Um, I have to check a couple places for it. And I think that's really cool. Um, as someone who loves, you know, going around all the different sections of the bookstore and seeing what there is to be seen. I'm, I'm a generalist. I, I draw from lots of different, um, or try to draw from lots of different bodies of knowledge. And so, you know, I think I think the book sort of um, is is a product of that, and and so I like to see that. Um, I think one unfortunate thing that's happened recently, it, and by recently I mean the 1900s and 2000, and less than the 2000s, but certainly starting in the 1900s, was that literary that we divided out literary fiction from genre fiction. Um, because when you think about books like Frankenstein or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or The Portrait of Dorian Gray, um, or any of these, you know, all of these fantastical tales that were written by, you know, uh, Dickens, uh, all the, the Christmas, A Christmas Carol. These are stories that are about humanity and defining humanity by standing outside of these are very philosophical tales. And they were treated as literary fiction by the people who read, you know, who, who read them and they weren't shelved in a different part of the bookstore. That's all like marketing. And so I think that in, in recent years, we're starting to come back to a sense that, a lot of, you know, that this is sort of an artificial creation that you can have the, the fantastical or the futuristic mixed in with your literary fiction. And it doesn't automatically get the giant genre stamp on the cover. Or if it does, that doesn't relegate it to some lesser than part of the bookstore. Um, and that's, that's my, my manifesto, my flag that I love to wave. Perfect. And you should, um, <laughs> you should be very proud of, of both writings and both books as we are. Now, the theme of language also recurs often in the book. Uh, most of the characters speak multiple languages and use these languages in different ways with their various communities. I mean, I thought my English was 
pretty good until I started reading some of the sentences. And I was very embarrassed to have to turn to my, you know, teenage members of my family to get another tutorial on the English language. And some, so it's just fascinating how deep you go into the theme of language. Can you talk a little bit about this? Um, that'd be great if you can. So this, this came about almost by accident in some ways um, because and the first book is I was putting like the rules together uh, for Chava Nachman and what they could and couldn't do. I ran very quickly into the question of, okay, what languages would they have in common? How would they be able to speak to each other? How would they be able to speak with anyone at all? And what I came down to was, well, it's just magic. It's going to be that they can both speak any human language because that's just how they are made. That's just how it is. And I'm going to sort of hand wave over that. And then what, once they got together and a little bit in the first book, but much more in the second book, I was like, oh, wait a minute. So if they can speak any human language, they can, they can have in jokes, they can have their own vocabulary, they can have their own, um, sort of a, they can switch languages in the middle of a sentence if there's a particular word in a different language that they want to bring into it. Um, and this can be how one of the ways in which they have their little community of two. Um, and actually, I got that sort of from my, uh, my nephew, um, who is um, at this point taller than me, but when he was very little, he could, he, he's trilingual, he speaks Arabic, French and English. And he would switch words in the middle of a sentence, uh, switch languages, especially when he was angry. He would just start jumbling up all of his words in an effort to get everything out. And his parents would have to like sit there and mentally unpiece their, the sentences to figure out what exactly he was angry about. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to do it for them. Um, but at the same time, there is especially for um, Ahmad that issue of I am not who I used to be because I don't have this language available to me. Um, and it's like, okay, so who is he in that language? How is that different than who he is in this language? In the same way that a person, you know, people's experiences of themselves change with their languages. If there's one that there's like, that they're better at than another. I hear my, my father-in-law talking on the phone. He's, his English is like his third language. Uh, when he's talking to his, um, uh, his family in Arabic, I can hear the difference. You know, I can hear that he's a, it's a smoother conversation and it's like, okay, so who is he in Arabic and how is that different than who he is in English? And so, you know, the, the, the fun thing about Havan Ahmad is that you can take these questions and blow them up and sort of externalize them and make them into a completely heightened thing. Um, so th that was just some of the issues that I wanted to address. That's, again, very bold. Very few writers would venture out <laughs> with linguistics um, on top of the deep history and the fantasy that goes into the writing as well. As one of uh, your readers says, I absolutely lived your book. It was original and fascinating to me. I read and I, and I read a lot. And this book was by far an all-star book. Never stop writing. I have to say that in my own home, we've been fighting over who gets their hand on your books first and gets to finish it. So how, does, how do you think your book appeals to 
in at least in my case, different age groups in our family. How is that the case? I mean, I was taken by the history of it, mm-hmm. by the fact that you, as an American writer, are able to bring in, you know, another part of the world into your writing and also historical events here. Um, but I also have members of my family who just love the depth of the character development and the event description. Did you set out to make it a uh, this uh, this form of a book? What was your thoughts about it? I didn't set out to do that specifically. Um, I did at one point. So when I started writing this, the first book, I originally thought it was going to be a short story, and it very quickly became apparent. Um, especially to my writer friends in the workshop I was at at the time, that this was not a short story. It was a it was a big novel, and it took me a while to figure that out. Um, at one point, I thought it was going to be YA and a young adult book, and so I, at that point, sort of that defined in my head like how racy I could get it, you know how how adult, how, um, you know, just that I didn't, I didn't want it to be. And, and also the idea of writing what is in essence a fairy tale taking place in the real world. That gives it a certain, you know, there, there's a, a higher level language to a fairy tale. I mean, I'm not high as an elite, but distance from its subject. Um, and which it, it meant I was going to be writing in third person. It meant it was going to be a slightly formal diction way of, you know, narrative voice. It meant there wasn't going to be a lot of swearing, especially in the narrative voice. Um, and it meant that it was, there wasn't going to be a whole lot of, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, so that sort of made it into a book that could be read across, that, that, that a parent could feel like they were giving to their kid to read. Um, and I honestly hadn't realized that that was going to happen. It wasn't until after the first book was published and people started telling me that they had given it to their kids to read or that the kid, you know, the, the daughter had given it to the mother who took it to her book club and the daughter came with, and that was just so awesome. Um, because that was like exactly the relationship with books that I had with my dad growing up that he gave me all of his old sci-fi classics and I read them and I gave him, I still give him book recommendations. We trade book recommendations and it's just like, it's such a wonderful thing to share, um, that it just, I'm just honored that people are doing that with my own stuff. That is very precious. Um, someone asks, some reviews compare the book to Dickens' serialized style. What was your goal in choosing short chapters for The Hidden Palace? Uh, The goal in choosing short chapters um, was sort of out of necessity because my it's told there are so many different stories that we're following. I never bothered, I never counted up how many characters get their own sort of, you know, third person, you know, POV, um, how many we follow directly. But I think it's like five or six, maybe more. And the problem that you run into is once you, if you stick with one character for too long, um, the others sort of, it's harder for the reader to sort of keep in mind what's been going on elsewhere in the book. Um, and also you have to account for time. Um, if one, you know, if, if you're doing a chronological book and each character is telling, it's like you're, you're stringing these character POVs like on a thread that's a timeline, 
you can't go too long or with the next one, you're going to have to do all this flashback to say what they've been up to. And I do do that sometimes, but it becomes harder. It became harder later in the book as the action sped up. And I was like, all of this stuff is happening simultaneously. We have to sort of go back and forth and, and see what's happening with everyone in these different places as they're converging. So a lot of it does become like being a director, like a film director or an editor, where it's you think of it like scenes, like, like, uh, like movie scenes where you're shifting back and forth. And when the action gets more quick is when you are switching, you know, like, like points of view back and forth. And, and that builds a certain tension and, and drama as well. That's very interesting. So one of the questions is, and you've touched on this, but what really moved you to write a sequel? And of course, it took eight years between the two books. We know it's a lot to take care of. You did. Is there any more that you want to share with us about this journey? About the, the second book? The two sequels, yes. So, yeah, some of it had to do some of, you know, so basically, so why did the tape? Why did it take so long, Helene? Um, Part of it was learning to be a writer and a mother at the same time. That was really hard. Um, It's still hard. It's a different kind of hard now that my kids are a little older. They're seven and nine now. Um, But there was a lot of you know, I don't remember the first year of my son's life because I was very sleep deprived and also on, you know, still doing like book tour stuff. And so it it became, you know, an endurance, you know, race more than anything else. Um, And then from there, it was like, okay, I have to hold all of this stuff in my head. If I want to write these big, complicated books, I have to keep a number of things in my head at the same time. And there's a certain amount of um, seclusion that has to happen as part of that. Um, there, there's a, a writer named Cal Newport who talks a lot about um, uh, productivity and he refers to it as deep work, that you have to be able to schedule out a certain number of hours to just do what, focus on one thing in order to really get into the thing itself. And that becomes harder, like when you've got family, laundry, dinner to make, all of that. And, you know, not not to complain because it's it's been the biggest privilege of my life, but it is it's sort of like a day-to-day logistical scramble. Um, so getting used to that was an issue. Um, also, it just took a long time to figure out the scope of what I that what it was that I wanted to write. Um, it took a while. like like I said, I bite, I always bite off more than I can chew. The research process gets me down any number of rabbit holes that I just, I find everything out and I want to add it all to the book because it's all just so fun. Um, I want to add all my research. I want to talk about everything. The the, the, the topics that I researched that did not make it into this book include um, uh, New York cops in 1900, specifically the Irish heritage of, of, of you know, basically almost every cop was, was Irish. Um Silent film. Oh my goodness, what else did I? Oh God, I don't even remember. Um, so much stuff that I, I there was going to be a whole thing about silent films. I wrote, I watched like a month of silent films, and it just it never made it in because it just was too much. So I think next time I have to start without the research process, 
assume that I know enough to at least tell the skeleton of the story and then go back and fill in. And I don't know if that'll keep me from, you know, running off the rails, but we can, we can give it a try and we, for science and we'll see what happens. That sounds brilliant. And <laughs> I like how clear minded and articulate you are about the challenges of being a woman and a writer. Um, not everybody can see what it means to be a woman writer from a woman's perspective. And I've certainly um, heard, heard, I really enjoyed hearing it. Um, Oftentimes I find that maybe we're expected to live up to a certain standard that is not gender specific, but my God, writing can become gender specific. Very gender specific. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of like emotional drain that comes with that that somehow men in general don't have to deal with of, am I good enough? Am I doing a good enough job? Am I, oh, I forgot this thing. That means I'm a terrible mother. Like we, we spin out so quickly. Um, and and, I three meals. How, what three meals am I going to make for the day? Yep. 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 All of that. That is. So thank you for that. Um, I can go on and, you know, just continue this conversation. But as it stands, unfortunately, we have time for only one or two more questions and they're still coming in. And um, one of the questions is, are there any authors that you're particularly excited about now? If you have, uh, if you have given, assuming that you have time for reading. And also another um, person was asking, who were your main influences? I think you did talk a little bit about it, but was there a specific person or a specific director or a specific author that really became an influence for these two books? Um, that's a good question. My original influence, um, the one who sort of got me to grad school was um, Michael Shabone. Uh, who wrote uh, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. He was the first person who I read who wrote a book that could be about comic books. And would and, and it was like, oh, you can do that and still win the Pulitzer. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that, you know, you know writing about this stuff that I loved when I was a kid, you could still say serious things and be, you know, taken seriously and not, you know, sort of, moved off to, you know, an aisle somewhere else. Um, so he's a big influence. One who has, I don't know inf- about influence as far as, yeah, to some extent, um, someone who I just adore and who I came to way too late in life is Ursula Le Guin, um, who wrote, uh, she wrote just a ton of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, she died a few years ago, uh, but she was like writing right up until the end. Um, and she wrote, uh, a lot about, um, the larger questions of humanity and in, in both her science fiction and her fantasy and just the sharpest mind, just an insanely sharp mind. Um, and, and her, um, Wizard of Earthsea books, uh, are just a classic of, of children's fantasy literature that don't get read widely enough. Ah, uh, gosh, who else? Who am I excited about right now? I'm reading a book called Folklorn uh, by a Korean-American author named Angela Mi Young-Her. And that is about, she's just combining all sorts of stuff. She's got Korean folk tales, um, particle physics, 
uh, Norwegian, his, no, Swedish, Swedish history and uh, culture. Um, it's the story of a, a, a woman who's a neutrino physicist and who is also uh, Korean American and who is who has been at the pole at the South Pole working on an experiment and her mind starts to go a little bit fuzzy and some things start happening that you're not sure if they're real or not. Um, and so that one is fantastic. There's so much good stuff out there right now. I mean, it, it seems like we're going through this amazing renaissance of, of um, sort of fantasy and sci-fi influenced books, if not like directly sci-fi and fantasy books. Um, oh God, uh, uh, one more. Um, the fifth N.K. Jemison uh, wrote a series. Uh, the first book is the fifth season, and it's yeah, I, it's fantasy, but it's also I don't know how she did it. It's it's just just look her up. N.K. Jemison, she's astonishing. I can't even explain her books. Just read them. <laughs> the, that is great. Now um, we have again more questions pouring in, and I want to try to. Um, put them together uh, as best as I can. Um, first of all, is there going to be a trilogy? And secondly, you did touch about on this, but um, you recognize yourself or any of your friends or family members in specific characters in the book. And finally, do you see yourself more of a Hava or an Ahmad? As a, oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, I am definitely more of a Hava. Um, I'm, I'm, she's, you know, there is sort of a chicken and egg feel to it, but, um, I, I, I gave her my neuroses. I am a very cautious person. Um, I, I think I'm definitely more like Hava. Um, the, the, then the question of course becomes, is my husband Ahmad? And the answer is no, not really. Um, my husband's a lot more of a, um, uh, responsible person than Ahmad is. Um, he, there is a certain uh, phys physical presence that my, my, especially like when I first met him, my husband was, he's in martial arts. He was a dancer. He was a, you know, an actor and, and all, and he very like, if, if someone threw a Frisbee and it ended up up a tree, he was going to be the one to like go scamper up the tree and get it and bring it down. And so there is a, a, a certain amount of like physical presence that Ahmad has that I did draw somewhat from my husband, but I think they are less similar in that, um, so I'm trying to think of some of the other questions. Is it going to be a trilogy? Um, probably. Uh, I do have one more book on my contract. And I think, you know, at first I was sort of like, oh, do I want this to be the only stuff that I write? Do I want to be like the one series writer? And you know, then I'm like, you know what? That's fine. <laughs> you know, if there's if the readers if readers still want like the, the stuff that I'm writing in this vein, you know, would I be writing something new just to prove to myself that I could? I mean, I guess that keeps you from becoming like a pastiche of yourself, but I also trust the people around me to tell me when that's happening. So, I think at least one more book and then we'll we'll see we'll see where my life is then. Well, we can't wait to read that next book and then see if a fourth one will follow. <laughs> we really look forward to it. And I have to say, there's an element of your writing that is also um, 
pretty um, good for movies, I would have to say. And I don't know how many authors like to hear that. So uh, I don't mean this in any, you know, there's no meaning behind it, but I can imagine that given that you had aimed to write a book for young adults in the beginning and that, you know, there have been great movies made also around fantastical themes. Mm -hmm. If you have been approached for these ideas, if you would consider them. Oh yeah. I, I would love, I would love for there to be a Gollum and TV Golem and TV, Golem and Genie streaming TV show or something. Um, it's been, uh, the rights have been optioned a couple times, both times, nothing, you know, they tried, but no, no one bit. Um, and this is very common. Um, I think it's like nine times out of 10. This is the story is someone options the rights and then nothing happens. Um, I think the, the main drawback is that it would be, just on the face of it, a very expensive series to write. You that you've got the historical setting, so you've got to do all the costuming and the sets and all of that, as well as fantasy, which means a certain amount of CGI and effects. Um, so it would have to like it, it can't just be like you know some like a small production company doing you know a five episode thing that's you know in in an apartment somewhere it's got to be like big and expensive so that's you know if someone comes along who wants to spend a bajillion dollars to turn this into a tv series i would love it um we'll see <laughs> we'll see if it ever happens that's perfect we'll keep our fingers crossed and thanks to our distinguished speaker helene wecker she is the author of The Hidden Palace, A Tale of the Golem and the Ginny. I'm Banasha Kainush, your moderator for today's program, which was part of the club's Good Literature series underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. Now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating 117 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.